All right, so guys, tonight we are continuing in the book of Romans, but what we do periodically is we take a break and then we do uh, a series of topical sermons that have flowed out of the previous chapters. And so we're covering chapters five through eight, and tonight we're going to be dealing with God's strange providence. God's strange providence. Why strange? Because from our perspective, we often, if we understand the Bible, we often say, God, what are you doing? And we cannot make sense of our lives, the, tr- the, the troubles, the trials, the struggles, the walls that we keep hitting, the disappointments, uh, the suffering, the pain, all of it. It's strange to us how God or why God would allow the things he allows in our lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, God's strange providence. Pray with me, and we'll jump in, and we're going we're gonna to hit the ground running, and we're just going to move, okay? So as soon as I say amen, pay attention. All right, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. Uh, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we want to hear from you tonight. We want to hear what you would have to say to us from your word. Please speak to us. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our hearts. Encourage us. Build us up. Help us to see with clarity and hear with clear ears. Father, speak tonight by your Holy Spirit, we pray, through your word. Hit each person where they need to be hit tonight, God. Encourage those who need encourage. Build up those who need built up. Father, even tear down what needs to be torn down so that might be rebuilt in a more healthy and sound and structural way. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray you would speak through it now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. What is providence? Providence from the Easton Bible Dictionary is literally foresight. Foresight. But it is generally used to denote God's preserving and governing all things by the means of secondary causes. Now, we're going to unpack what secondary causes is, is in a minute. But it's God's preserving and governing all things by the means of secondary causes. Now, where do we find this clearly in the Bible? Well, Romans 8.28. And so this would be the text that we would use in the book of Romans to use as a, as a jumping point to launch into God's strange providence. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, you could take this verse and you could preach an entire series of messages on Romans 8.28. You really can, because there's so many different angles to look at it. Well, tonight we're going to look at it through the lens of God's providence. And the idea here is, for those who love God, for those who are called into his kingdom, they are saved through the person and work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, drawing them, calling them unto himself. For those, God works all things, unqualified all things that come into their lives for good. This is the truth of Romans 8.28. And it's hard for us to believe this. It's easy to understand It's hard to believe, especially when things are going very bad and you're disappointed and it's hard. Hard to believe, easy to understand. So what I'm hoping to do is unpack uh, throughout the Bible uh, God's providence. And prayerfully, God will show us this is not only biblical, but helpful for us to understand and to live by. Um, Just as a side note, um, I am drawing from maybe three or four primary sources here. Uh, number one would be Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, fantastic thick book. Um, John Piper wrote a little book called uh, Spectacular Sins, and it's about how God uses sin to accomplish his purposes. Another one that's been very influential is The Truths We Confess. It's an exposition of the Westminster Confession by R.C. Sproul. And then lastly, The Invisible Hand. Uh, about Romans 8.28, also written by R.C. Sproul. And so I'm going to quote from various theologians tonight, uh, but if you want to go deeper, check out those four resources and you can't go wrong. All right, so what is it? What is providence? Here's Wayne Grudem's expanded definition, which I find very helpful. 
Grudem says, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Now, I'm going to take these three aspects of God's providence, and we're going to open them up biblically, okay? So the first one we're going to do is God keeps all things existing. God is the creator, and so if he is the highest being and the creator, then not only is everything dependent on him for their creation, but they're also dependent on him for their being sustained, for their life to continue, for their existence to continue. So let's look at this. In Hebrews 1.3, this text is speaking about Jesus, and look at the, the clarity here. He, the he is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this text specifically speaks to Jesus upholding the entire universe. All created things, including all of the galaxies and all of the stars and the solar system and our little planet and its oceans and forests and glaciers and all the living things in it. Jesus is upholding or uh, keeping the universe together. He is upholding it. Here's one more text that we could see this very clearly. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, also referring to Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning not firstborn as first created, but firstborn as in the chief, the one who inherits all things, the supreme one, the preeminent one. That's what it means, firstborn. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, and these are names for demons and angels here, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all ranks of different kinds of angels and demons, all things were created through him and for him. Now look at 17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So he sustains the universe by his power, and he is holding all things together, meaning the substance that your body is made of, he is holding your substance together so that you don't fall into a puddle of atoms. That's what it means. He is upholding the properties of all things so that they stay what they are. Water stays water, coffee stays coffee, chairs stay metal, and, and we live life in a consistent way. Can you imagine if you went out to get in your car and it was a pile of snow? Well, thankfully, metal stays metal and copper stays copper and, you know, little microchips stay microchips and things are consistent. Why is that? Because... Jesus is upholding the consistency of all things. This is providence. Here's Grudem. God, in preserving all things he has made, also causes them to maintain the properties with which he created them. God preserves water in such a way that it continues to act like water. He causes grass to continue to act like grass, which is its distinctive characteristic, or with all its distinctive characteristics. He causes the paper on which this sentence is written to continue to act like paper, so it does not spontaneously dissolve into water and float away, or change into a living thing and begin to grow. Until this paper is acted on by some other part of creation, and thereby its properties are changed— for instance, until it is burned with fire and becomes ash, it will continue to act like paper so long as God preserves the earth and the creation that he has made. This is part of providence. God not only creates things, but he upholds all things and he keeps all things what they are consistently. Rocks don't change into squash. You, you don't get a piece of cheese out of your fridge and put it on your sandwich and all of a sudden it becomes pepperoni. It stays cheese and the pepperoni stays pepperoni. Why is that? Well, you're like, well, that's obvious. Well, did you know that the Bible says that's God doing that? 
And we're just so used to consistency. The sun rises, the sun sets, the moon comes out, the moon goes away. We're so used to this that we don't think of it as God, do we? We think of it as impersonal laws of nature. In fact, God, maybe he exists, perhaps, as if you're keeping your own heart beating, as if you even understand how you're hearing me right now and your brain is making it make sense to you and pictures are forming in your mind and things are going into your being and lodging in there that will never leave your consciousness for the rest of your life. You have no idea how that's happening and neither do I. But this is God in his providence, in his power, in his sovereignty. Now, here's another text. Jesus, uh, teaching his disciples not to fear man, but to fear God, says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? The Greek there is an aserion. It's a Roman copper coin. In Latin, it's a quadrant. It's worth about a sixteenth of a denarius, which was a day's wage for a laborer. So, two sparrows for one-sixteenth of a day's wage. Not very expensive. Okay, that's the point. Are not two sparrows sold for very little, a penny in the ESV? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, Jesus is saying here, sparrows are worth very little. And yet, not one of them falls from the sky and dies without it being consistent with God's purpose and will and plan. Oh, and by the way, all those hairs on your head, he knows every one at any time. Now, I live with ladies, and, uh, and I go to the shower, and I go to the sink, and there's hair all the time. It's in the brushes, it's on the clothes, plus I have several dogs, and then that just multiplies the hairs. So, I, I would say not only does God know how many hairs are on human heads at all times, but he probably knows how many hairs are on my dog's whole body at any one given time. And it's amazing because every time you pet one of my dogs, especially in spring and fall, you get a whole hand of fur and it just goes like a little, you know, dandelion dried up into white fuzz. And God knows every hair on every animal, on every person at any one time. You see, that's too much information to know. Friends, we're just talking about hair. The point is, God is far more vast and complex and brilliant than you could ever imagine, and you are far more smaller than you think you are. For you to even comprehend a being like that, is, it's unthinkable to you, which shows how small you are, how small I am, and how big God is. And here's the amazing thing about this. He's not a distant being, unwilling to get involved. He, if you're a Christian, is your father who literally wants to hear from you regularly, daily, multiple times a day. And yet, he knows all the hairs on all the heads of all the people in the whole world, about eight billion present. That's a lot of hair, man. (laughs) And yet, God is sustaining all of this for his glory. Now, let's do number two. Okay, so we're, we're done with number one, which is that he um, keeps all things existing. He upholds their consistency. Number two is he cooperates with all things, all created things. Now, this is where we start to have some confusion. We can grasp, okay, we, I get that God can sustain all things by the word of his power, but how is it that I make choices and God is still sovereign over all of my free choices? And how is it that the Bible says, as we heard Aunt Diane read earlier, that all of our days are written in God's book before one of them take place? How can that be? But yet the God, God is this God, and this is what the Bible teaches. So R.C. Sproul, a uh, helpful theologian, we have a ton of his books back there. Uh, there's one on does God control all things? You could pick it up first little sections on providence if you want. We're going to talk about concurrence and confluence for a minute, okay? So we're wrestling with the idea here is how do we have free choices where we choose according to our highest desire at any moment, 
We are free to choose according to our desires. And how is it that at the same time God is accomplishing his will and purpose through our free choices? How is that possible? Concurrence and confluence is the way that we can wrestle with this idea. Doing no violence to the will of his creatures, God achieves his purposes through his chosen means. And now he's going to unpack the means. One view is that as we hurtle through space, centrifugal force, gravity, and, uh, I'm sorry, yes, centrifugal force, gravity, and centripetal force keeps us from collapsing and falling out of existence. These forces and powers are real. Gravity exists, but its power is not inherent. Do you know what that means? That means that gravity does not exist on its own without Jesus giving it its properties as gravity. It's not some kind of law minus Jesus sustaining that law of gravity. That's what R.C. is saying here. Even the power of gravity rests on the primary power of God. Gravity is not an independent primary cause. Now, when we talk about causes, here's what we're thinking about, okay? If God is, as we read earlier in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1, if he is the primary source of all things, then all things under him that make other things happen are secondary in cause. God is always the first cause. How did I just raise my fist into the air if God did not first give me the power to raise my fist into the air? Therefore, my raising my fist is a second cause, God being the first, giving me the energy to do this. Make sense? First and secondary causality. The only primary cause is the one by whom all things are made and in whom all things hold together. Ultimately, what keeps us from falling off the edge of the earth is the hand of God. <laughs> Let's keep going. But he exercises his power or his, yeah, his power through the real power of secondary causes, such as gravity. In terms of human relationships, we are secondary causes, and the power we exert are real, not illusory. We are not puppets with no volition, freedom, or power, but we have no volition, freedom, or power beyond what is given to us by God. He remains sovereign over all these things, bringing his sovereign will to pass. When discussing God's decrees, we speak of the concurrence of the human and divine wills. Concurrence is also called confluence. Both words mean a flowing together. Now, uh, how many of you have been to the point? You've been to the fountain? Okay. If you were to go to the point today, and you were to go right to where the tip hits, uh, where the Ohio is, you would see this plaque here. And here's what it says. It says, point of renewal, point of confluence, point of conflict. Over here, you have the Monongahela. Over here, you have the Allegheny. And here, you have the Ohio River. Now, the Allegheny and the Monongahela are two separate rivers that flow, and at the point right there where this plaque is, they turn into the Ohio River. And so here's the image, friends, and I got this from R.C.'s Invisible Handbook. Our will and our free choices are one river. God's will and purposes are the other river, and they come together to create our reality. You can't have one without the other. And so we are not robots, we are not puppets, we do make real choices, but mysteriously, at the same time, our free choices are ordained by God and accomplishing His will. This is Ephesians 1.11. God causes all things to work according to His will, His purposes. It's Ephesians 1.11. How can this be? Well, the way we can think about it, and again, it doesn't plumb the depths of the mystery, but it does give you some handles to grab. We are 100% responsible for our choices, and we make free choices. God is 100% sovereign over our free choices and allows our free choices to be made. Now, there are plenty of texts in the Bible that God stops people from doing things they intend to do. And when he does that, that is his sovereign prerogative. However, if he doesn't stop a choice from being made, 
in a sense, it was his will that that choice would be made, no matter how evil the choice was. And we're going to wrestle with uh, God's sovereignty, love, power, and evil in a moment. Because you have to when you're talking about providence. So the idea here is that God is the primary cause of all things, and he exerts his power and accomplishes his will through secondary causes, namely the free choices of human beings and angels and demons and animals and bugs and even smaller tiny bugs like bacterias and viruses. God is sovereign over all things. There are no molecules that escape his sovereign power and grasp, and all things are going according to his will. This is what the Bible clearly teaches. Now, what we can do is we can look at some texts and not just a theologian. Acts 17, 24 to 28, Paul, the apostle, is speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Greece. This is the hotbed, the seat of Greek philosophy. You remember uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and, and then all the philosophers that flowed from them all the way up to the point where Paul is here. You know, those guys predate Paul. And so Paul steps right into the center of the philosophical world at that time. And he's going to pr proclaim to them the creator God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He was walking through the city of Athens and saw all these altars, and he found an altar to the unknown God. And so he took that as an opportunity to go into the Areopagus on Mars Hill and to proclaim who this unknown God is. And he says, the, the Lord who made all things does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This God who made heaven and earth has no needs, and no human beings can serve his needs. He has no needs. In fact, he is the one who gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you get that? Life, breath, and everything. That means your living, your breathing, and all your actions are under God's power as the first cause. That's what that means. He made one from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Now, the NIV translates that something like this the exact times and places where men should live. In other words, you're here tonight on purpose because God wanted you here. He decided you would be in Pittsburgh tonight and that you would, by your own free choices, be here in this room tonight listening to this message. He determines the exact times and places where men should live having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now listen to this. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now if you know anything about Greek philosophy, and this is probably a, a quote from Epicurus, uh, a philosopher, or Epimenides, sorry. Life, movement, and being are the primary things that, that Greek philosophy deals with. The, the nature of life itself, movement, how are things moving, and, and causality from things that move, and then being itself. And Paul here just says, look, in God are all these things. He is the answer. He is the primary one. And I'm here to tell you who he is. And then he goes on to share the gospel with them. And some of them are like, this guy is crazy, get him out of here. But some want to hear him further, and they go along with him, and he shares the gospel, and they become Christians. But the point here is God is the primary power over all things. In him we live and move and have our being. He gives life and breath and everything else. Now, how many of you know the story of Joseph and his 12 brothers and how that plays out? 
It's a crazy story, right? So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and the second uh, to the, the youngest is Joseph, and he's the favored one, and his brothers are jealous of his father's favoritism, so they decide one day they're going to throw him in a pit, and they're going to kill him. One of the brothers intervenes and says, no, let's not kill him, let's sell him to these traders here, and so they're sold, he's sold to the traders, the traders take him down into Egypt, and he spends years, a decade plus in Egypt, going through hardship after hardship after hardship. And then God raises him up to be the prime minister of Egypt. Okay? That's, that's the deal. And prior to his brothers throwing him in the pit, he had these dreams. He would dream about his brothers and his father and his mother bowing down to him. And this was part of the reason why they hated him so much, because he would tell them these dreams, hey, you're going to bow down to me someday. And they're like, oh no? Yeah, really? You like this pit? And so the, dr- the dream comes true because there's a famine in the land and his brothers have to come down to Egypt because God, through dreams, showed Joseph that this famine was coming and he stockpiled Egypt and Egypt was the only country that had grain. And so everyone had to come to Egypt to get their food, including his brothers. And so through a, a crazy turn of events, you can read it in Genesis yourself, um, His whole family is brought down to Egypt and kept alive. God's chosen people, the chosen seed, the Jewish people. And remember, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Well, Jacob dies, and his brothers are now afraid that now that dad is dead, Joseph's going to get us. And so they come to him, and they say, look, before dad died, he he told us to tell you, forgive us, you know, please don't kill us, is basically what he said. And then he, he amazingly says, like, look, am I, am I God? Now, this in Genesis 50 is Romans 8.28 Old Testament. He says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me in all that you did, but God meant it for good. To to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, check this out, friends. You, brothers, meant evil. God meant it, evil, for what? Good. Their intention in that action was only evil. God's intention in that same exact action was what? And God is not evil, and God committed no evil in that act. Here's how it works. God said, I can see what's going to flow from this. Because God can see causes. He knows what events flow from all events. You're here tonight. A billion other events are going to be unleashed because you were here tonight. And God knows them all. His purpose for you was to be here so that all those future events spawning from tonight could happen. And so God knew that this would result in good and actually the salvation of his brothers through the very evil that they were committing. And so he allowed them to make this choice, which was evil, so that it would result in good. This is confluence. Reality is what happens. God's purposes in the evil things are always good. Even though the secondary causes, their purpose might be evil and According to demons and Satan, it's always evil. That's all they want to do. And yet God uses the evil of Satan and demons to accomplish his will as well. This is God. Again, we know that for those who love God, all things, even evil things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let's pause for one second. What we should not do is call evil good, ever. We always call evil evil, and we always meet evil with its proper response. We never try to play God and, and, well, I can do evil, and God will use it for good. Never. We always act according to God's revealed will, and for his creatures who are his children, we are to always love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, not to sin. However, when we do sin, which we will, God takes the very sin that we commit and he turns it for good. 
though it is still sin and still evil. You guys with me? Excellent. RC again. This does not mean that everything that happens is good in and of itself, but due to providence, everything that happens is working toward our good. Without the concept of providence, we would miss the comfort, consolation, and joy of knowing that God stands above and beyond all things. All right, let's move on to number three. Now, God directs all things. He directs all things. Now, this is where God takes all the actions and all of the choices of all the people, and he moves history along according to his purpose. All choices, all actions, and now this includes evil choices and evil actions, as we just touched upon. Now, you, you, you know um, maybe this verse in Proverbs, but it spells it out perfectly. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So we, we make all these plans, we have all these purposes, but it's God's purpose who will ultimately win out. How many of you have read the book of Job, or at least the first couple chapters? Okay. Job is a, is a great story. It's a great book of literature, but man, is it a hard book. Okay. And amazingly, when you, when you think about Job, Job has no idea, like we do, reading the story, what's going on. We can see the conversations between God and Satan. We can see that Satan wants to destroy Job and get him to, you know, leave the faith and turn on God. And yet Job has no idea. He's just experiencing terrible after terrible after terrible after terrible. And so the story goes, Satan appears before God. God says amazingly to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous, blameless, the only reason that Job is committed to you is because you've blessed him. It's the only reason. If you take away the blessings, he'll curse you. He'll leave you. So the accusation was, Job's only in it for your gifts. And if you take away the gifts, he'll leave you. He'll abandon you. And so God says, all right, go for it. And so he allows Satan to destroy Job's property his camels, his herds, his servants, and his children. All the kids were in one house, and Satan somehow caused the windstorm to cause the house to blow in, and they all died, all of them. And only one servant from each event was able to come and tell Job the story. And as he learns this, he tears his clothes, throws ashes on his head, and here's where we break in. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. So in response, Job worships. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I, I shall return. Now, look at this. The Lord gave, who took away? The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, he just, in one sense, if you want to color it in this light, he just blamed God for all that happened. Didn't he? The Lord gave me all these things, and who took it away? the Lord. Now watch this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In other words, true. That's hard. So God was the one because he's the primary cause and Satan couldn't do what he did without God allowing him to and even energizing him to do it. And Job picked that up. Job knows that God is the only one who can allow all the events that happen in my life. And so Job's response was to worship. Chapter 2 rolls around. Satan again uh, says, hey, skin for skin. If you take away his health, he'll curse you. And he says, okay, but just don't kill him. And so he does. He ends up with terrible sores and boils all over his body, even on his feet. So there's no way he could be comfortable no matter where he sits or lays. It's just pain and suffering. And so his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like maybe, maybe, this is one interpretation, maybe she's like, just get it over with. 
Why are you holding on to your integrity and suffering like this? Just curse God and get it over with. Die. Wasn't death better than this? Maybe. That's what she's saying. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Now look at this. Honey, he gives her a little kiss. Shall we receive, look at this, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Now that word can be translated disaster or calamity, but let's, let's put disaster and calamity in there. It's still just as hard. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not disaster? Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not calamity? Or, as the ESV translates it, it can be translated evil. Should we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, true. Friends, here's why this is helpful for you to know. Because you are going to go through some hard things in your life if you haven't already. And some of those things are calamitous, disastrous, and evil. And you need to know that God is in the mix and he's using it for good. His intentions in the calamity, in the disaster, in the evil is not to punish you if you're a Christian. How do I know that? Because Jesus was already punished in your place, friends. And if there's any punishment left for you, that means Jesus did not fully atone for your sins and you need to do some atoning. On the cross, when he said, it is finished, that was a lie. No, it's not finished. You need to pay for some of your sin. So God is not punishing us when disaster hits, calamity hits, or evil hits. What is he doing? It's often a mystery, friends. And this is the hardest part about God's providence it's mysterious and strange. We don't know what he's doing and we can't see what he's up to. And oftentimes, you know what the only option is? Trust. Didn't we just sing that? You're teaching us to trust. And the idea here is that God is sovereign over all things, the good and the bad. And if you can trust him, it's been said, if you can't trace his hand, you have to trust his heart. He said he's good. He said he's for you. He said he's not against you. You remember the end of Romans 8. We just went through it. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Not disaster, not calamity, not evil. Now, I want to show you, so remember, we were talking about confluence and kind of this flowing together of God's purposes, man's purposes into our reality. Now, there's this weird story, this interesting story in the Old Testament. Um, David is the king over Israel. David is victorious in battle, and he has this huge army. And there's a point in which David wants to know how great his army is. And you remember this story? He wants to take a census and see how many fighting men he has. And we get a little glimpse behind the scene what God's purposes are and what Satan's purposes are and what actually happens to the people of Israel. Now, this fits the providence very uh, succinctly. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, 1-4, we learn this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what's, what's the context? God is angry at his people. Okay? And God is often angry at his people in the Old Testament. From the Exodus forward, they're always rebelling against him. They're always stiff-necked. They're always complaining. They're always worshiping false gods. They're always middle-fingering him. And he's mad. Does he have a right to be mad? Would you be mad if your children did that to you? Of course you would. You give them all things and they middle-finger you. Oh, I love you. Come here. Give me, give me a hug. No, you'd be mad. And so God is mad at Israel, and he has a right to be mad. And so what does he do? He, God, incited David against them, saying. And so God is going to set David against the Israelites. Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, 
the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. But why does my Lord, the king delight in this thing? Now, Joab is not like the paragon of righteousness. He was not a good dude, but even he saw this is a bad idea. Don't do it, David. This is not a good thing. Now, why was it not a good thing? Probably because God already won many victories for David, uh, and he didn't need to count. He didn't need to know how many his, his people were. It was a pride thing. And so Joab sees that. He's like, no, don't do it. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. So after the census comes back, David's convicted, and he says, God, please take away my iniquity, forgive me. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. So a a seer is a prophet. David's seer saying, so David hears from God through prophets. Nathan, and here it's Gad. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, three years of famine come to you and your land, or you will flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Choose one. None are good. (laughs) None are good. But I'll give you a choice. Now consider and decide what I shall return to him who sent me, God. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. In other words, I choose option three. So the Lord sent pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Because God's angry and he wants to judge his people. Now, the Old Testament's full of stories like this. I don't know if you read your Old Testament, but this is not abnormal. Now, here's the account in Chronicles, same exact account. Look at this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, the commander of the army, go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the report that I may know their number. And then the story is the one we read. And so here's my question. Was it God who incited David or was it Satan who incited David? Is the Bible contradictory at this point? So what's going on here? Yes. Just like Job, Satan wanted to incite David to sin with temptation, and God's purpose was to judge his people. And so he allowed Satan to tempt David to sin in pride and number the people, and God judged his people because his purpose was judgment. Now listen, we're, we're not comfortable with God as judge. Okay? Like, we feel like God should not judge anyone. He should not condemn anyone. He should not punish sin. But we know that if God is good, then by definition, he has to punish sin. He has to be just. He has to, if his holiness is to, ma- to, to be maintained. Even a human judge, if he will not judge the guilty guilty, we would say, you're a terrible judge. How much more the judge of all the earth? And so though we're not comfortable with God judging the guilty, friends, by definition, if he is a good God, he must judge the guilty. And doesn't that pose a problem for us? Because we are the guilty. Like we should have been in that 70,000 that got the pestilence. That's the truth. And yet, what did we get instead? We got Jesus taking the pestilence in our place. 
We got Jesus getting crushed on the cross for our guilt. And we get mercy, we get grace, we get love, we get acceptance, we get favor, we get access. We get all the promises of God, yes and amen in Christ, and I could go on and on. Adoption, glorification, new heavens, new earth. No more depression, no more dying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, and on the good comes. Yet we don't deserve it. None of us in here can claim a right to God's favor. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. And yet, God is merciful. And so what I wanted you to see in this story and in the Job story is that God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. All things, even the bad things in the world, mysteriously, strangely, are a part of God's plan. God is not dropping the ball. God is not up in heaven wondering what he will do. God is not powerless to stop these things. They are all within his sovereign plan and purpose. And this is the, the strangeness of providence. Because we're like, I wouldn't do it like that. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. And God does seem strange to us at times, doesn't he? The death of Jesus was the worst sin and evil ever committed. Unrighteous men conspiring with Satan, killed God. And yet God used that worst of sins, the greatest evil, to accomplish the greatest good, the salvation of many, many, many untold, probably billions, over the span of human history. And so let's read in Acts chapter 2, 23 to 24, Peter's preaching uh, the first sermon after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost, and he's talking about Jesus. And he's talking in Jerusalem where the conspiracy against Jesus took place, where he was falsely condemned, uh, where he was taken outside to Golgotha and, and crucified. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. Now look at that. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you did it. Which is it? See, we like either or. But when it comes to providence, it's both and. Always. It's humans are 100% responsible for their choices and their actions and they are culpable. And yet God is sovereign and in control and 100% accomplishing his will. Now, I need to ask you a question. Who is more free, you or God? God. That's clear. But being that God is far more free than we are, that doesn't mean we have no capacity to make real choices that have real consequences that we are really responsible for and going to give an account for. God is sovereign, and yet we still get to make choices that matter, that have consequence. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. Screw him one more time, and then we only got one more slide and we're done, guys. Scripture nowhere shows that God directly, I'm sorry, Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil, but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Moreover, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil. And Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong they do. However we understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. That's a helpful distinction. God can bring evil about 
and allow evil to happen, but God never does evil. And he doesn't tempt anyone, James tells us. There's nothing in him that's attracted to evil. And so we must be careful, even when we talk about this, that we don't make God responsible for doing evil. He does not. He brings it about. He allows it to happen. He sometimes causes it to happen. But he is not the author of evil, nor does he do evil. He is God. All right. Now, this is the last one. What do we do? We count it all joy, friends. This is one of the hardest verses in the Bible. If you understand what the Bible really teaches about God's sovereignty and God's control and God's providence and our responsibility, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What does that mean? Because trials are not random. Friends, you must realize that all the trials that make it into our lives pass through God's purposes and will. All of them. The last fight you had with your spouse, the rebellious child, the thing that broke in your house, your car not cooperating. I think Eddie's pipe just burst last week, right? Yeah. All of it under God's purposes. That's hard. But we are to count it all joy. Why? Why would we do that? Well, James helpfully tells us. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, this word here, testing, uh, means genuine and without alloy. It's, it's a metal word. And so it's, it's purifying. Now, interestingly, in the scriptures, Satan is the one who tempts us. But often, those very temptations from God's perspective are what? Tests. And so, when Satan's purposes are to tempt us to do evil, God's purposes in those very temptations are actually tests that would prove genuine our faith. And even if we fail, we repent and we see that we are not as good as we thought we were. One thing that God has taught me as I've now been a Christian over 20 years is I am not as righteous as I thought I was. I am more capable of sin than I ever imagined. And so what God has done is he's taken away much of my self-righteousness. Hey, Chris, you're a pretty good guy. No, I'm not. <laughs> Except for the grace of God, I am a mess and obedient to my flesh, subject to Satan and his will. So we know that the testing of our faith produces a purity. It produces steadfastness. Now, listen, friends. Mature Christians are not ones who can quote thousands of Bible verses from memory, yet their lives are full of sin and inconsistency. That's not maturity. Maturity is steadfastness in the faith. It's character when you're in a worship gathering and then you're the same person at home when you have access to the internet and no one will ever find out. And you're the same person. You're the same person when talking about someone when they're not there as if they were there. Ouch. See, steadfastness remains with strong character and it's in it for the long haul. Steadfast, immovable. I imagine a massive oak with roots that have had hundreds of years to go into the soil and no storm is going to blow it down. Friends, this is what the trials and tests are doing to you. This is God's purpose in your struggles. He's producing steadfastness. Aren't you glad James told us this? And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let steadfastness do its job on you. What's the job? That we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when you're tempted to ask the question, and you will ask when hard things come, God, what are you doing? At least this. What are you up to in my life, God? At least this. He's purifying you. He's making you steadfast. He will make you perfect 
and complete. And friend, one day, if you're in Christ, you will be lacking nothing. Isn't that good news? Glorification is coming, and you won't even be temptable anymore. Not only will there not be any temptations, but you won't be temptable. Love it. I love it. All right. This is a helpful quote I found. Um, Søren Kierkegaard is a Danish uh, philosopher. He's a Christian. He said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. What that means is we often get perspective when we look back into our lives, and then we see what God was doing. But friends, when you're in the middle of the storm, it's hard to understand what God's up to and what in the world does this all mean. Can anyone feel this in your life? Isn't it helpful to have it at least put in a category? Life can only be understood backwards. When you look back, then you can see God's providence, what he was doing, what he was up to. But in the middle of it, you probably won't be able to tell. But you must keep living. You must keep trusting God. You must keep pressing forward. And as I was reminded this week, friends, you know what one of the best things you could do when you're feeling your worst? Think about somebody else. Call them, text them, serve them. Get out of yourself. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you're wrestling and struggling and suffering. Yeah, it is a helpful cure. All right, so we're done. What I want to do right now is let's remember what we learned in Acts chapter 2. And that is that Jesus, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was given for our sake that we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might have everlasting life, that we might have his very spirit available to us, that we might engage with in the middle of trials and trouble, that we might ask for power from. Friends, we only have hope because we're in Christ. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. And only those who are in Christ are the ones who love God. Only those who are called according to his purpose. And so what we celebrate right now is a symbol of Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. And this enables us to trust our loving God and Savior because we're in Christ. If he gave us Christ, the best thing, will he not then, along with Christ, graciously give us all things needed for life and godliness, including the hard things? I'll come back out after we sing a song, and we'll all celebrate what Jesus has accomplished for us together. So if you could stand, hold your communion elements until we're done singing, I'll come back out and I'll lead us all in taking communion. Now listen, if I was sitting with you in my office or I was in your living room and you were hurting and struggling, I would not preach you that message. Okay? Uh, I did preach on Romans 8, 28 two weeks ago, and I said, don't hit people with Scripture and bash them around when they're suffering. Okay? So my intent was not to harm anybody in here. I'm speaking generally from the Scriptures. Uh, if we were sitting in a counseling session, it would have sounded much different. Okay? So with that being said, it is very helpful. It's a solid rock to stand on that you understand, know, and believe that God is with you no matter what you're going through. As hard as it is, as calamitous as it is, as disastrous as it is, and as hard as the emotions are to wrestle with, God is not absent. If you're in Christ, he is with you, he's in the middle of it, and his strange purposes are at work, strange to us, not to him. Friends, we have God as our father who loves us, who gave his son for us. And that's what we celebrate right now, is that Jesus on the cross paid for all our sins so that we might be able to come to God and say, our Father in heaven. And he can say to us, my beloved child. So let us together celebrate what Jesus has accomplished, his body broken, his bloodshed, that we might become the children of God.
Father, we thank you for these great, heavy, and weighty truths in your word. Father, show us how they are helpful for us to meditate on, to understand, to grab a hold of, and to live out of. Father, we thank you that you are controlling all things. You are guiding all reality according to your purposes, even the bad things, the hard things, the terrible things, the tragic things, all within your sovereign plan and purposes. God, we thank you that you did not spare Jesus, but gave him up for us all, that we might know forgiveness, life, and you, Father, that we might have a relationship with you. Father, I pray that all these friends here, these brothers and sisters, myself, we would cling to you. We would not run from you when we're suffering. We would not run from you when we're hurting, but we would run to you and find you with open arms because we're in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.